The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. SunGrow is providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid is a 100-megawatt standalone battery storage installation expected to start commercial operation in the middle of this year. To learn more about SunGrow's energy storage solutions, email them at info at sungrowamericas.com. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SNC Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Some of them are wired, and some are non-wired. Non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. SNC Electric Company has provided innovative solutions for over a hundred years, and they will help you meet your energy needs. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. This is the Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. The electric grid is a central pillar of a zero-carbon economy. But in an era of unrelenting extremes, it's also one of the most fragile. This week, what does power after carbon look like? Plus, how is the swell of extreme weather accelerating and complicating the shift? Catherine Hamilton is here. She's my co-host. She's the chair of 38 North Solutions, and it looks like she is back in Virginia. That's right. It's beautiful, and I'm super excited about this episode. Why are you so excited? Because Peter Fox Penner is our guest, and Peter and I have gone through some of the same things at the same time, and I'm so I'm really interested to hear his perspective. That is right. Dr. Peter Fox Penner is the founder of the Boston University Institute of Sustainable Energy. He's a partner and chief strategy officer at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners, and he is the author of multiple books on the future of the electric grid, one of which we're going to be talking about today. And uh, Dr. Fox Penner is one of the go-to experts on the future of the grid. So welcome. Hi, Peter. Uh, Hi, Stephen. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on the show. It's really an honor to be here. So we're talking about your newest book, which is called Power After Carbon, Building a Clean, Resilient Grid. And I want to talk about that book through the lens of your previous book. I think it's helpful to bridge the different decades that we're talking about here, because it's remarkable how different this decade is from the last when you wrote your book called Smart Power. So that book looked at the new pressures that utilities were facing around climate policy and emerging distributed energy and digitization. And those were all important forces, but they were all still relatively new and utilities were in kind of an experimental phase with deploying them. Um, So let's go back to the smart power era first before we talk about uh, power after carbon. 2010, when this book was published, feels like a much different time for utilities. We hadn't experienced this wave of bankruptcies and restructurings that we saw in Europe. Um, Revenue erosion from distributed resources was largely theoretical here in the U.S. Renewables were still pretty expensive. Coal was king. We weren't constantly dealing with simultaneous extreme weather events caused by climate change like we are now. So what was your thesis back then for how change would hit the electric sector? Um, Well, I was worried about the narrative that utilities were dinosaurs that were, uh, that needed to go away. Um, If you remember the 2010s were, I would say the, the tail end of the era in which 
uh, deregulation and the introduction of markets was thought to be kind of the be-all and end-all solution to all our energy problems. And um, at the same time, I saw that, uh, for me, utilities were going to remain very, very essential players at the core of the transformation to a clean energy and a smarter energy ecosystem. Um, so I was really out of sync with the, the thinking at the time. Uh, and it was also an era of uh, stagnant to negative sales, which actually we are still in, but we are now seeing the end of. Um, there was, you were absolutely right, Stephen, climate change wasn't nearly as dominant a consideration as it is now. Uh, resilience was a little bit of an issue, but not nearly as big as it is now. And the, the smart grid and distributed energy, as you mentioned, Stephen, were seen to be the, the real threats that were going to um, take out utilities and create kind of a deregulated, decentralized, distributed kind of energy ecosystem. Yeah, I was thinking through what did we actually fund in that stimulus bill for a smart grid? And some of the things that we funded were super important, like synchrophasers on the grid that would enable outages um, on the transmission system to really be spotted much quicker. Um, I don't know if you all remember, but there was a blackout in 2003 that it took an entire year to figure out that a branch in Cleveland took down the entire Northeast. So that wouldn't happen anymore. We know that because of what we were able to install. Then there were other things that were sort of installed to make it the system slightly more efficient, like volt fire optimization. And then there were a lot of advanced meters that were installed. And this is where I was disappointed in that there were lots and lots of advanced meters installed in customer residences, and yet customers were still not able to take advantage of what that increased visibility, increased data about what they were doing and how they were using energy, could that they could really optimize it themselves and engage much more in the grid. Now, what that means is we do have some equipment out there and some digitization that could be used to to enable our grid and customers to benefit more. Um, we do have a lot more to do, but I think we're in a very different place than we were now on needing resilience and other services that have even more value than they did then. One of the things that's astonishing to me is just how quickly and fiercely the frequency of extreme weather events has changed. And it's caught a lot of people flat-footed, many utilities included. What, what are the things that changed that you didn't necessarily predict? Yes, I did not foresee the pace at which climate change would intensify serious storms and, and all of, of what we might call resilience events. Um, I, there were a couple of other things I'll just mention. Um, I really didn't look beyond a 10-year window at sales growth, and I therefore didn't talk at all about electrification and the upturn in sales demand that we're now on the cusp of and need to really intensify as one of the most difficult and important parts of climate policy, something we should probably talk a little bit more about. Um, I, I did not expect the regulatory community and utilities to understand um, the, all of my business model changes, and I was surprised many of them did. That, and that was something that surprised me in a, in a good way that there was much more willingness to talk about business model changes than I expected. Now, 
many of them haven't yet occurred. They're in the process of occurring. I think change is very slow in any kind of infrastructure industry, and partly there are good reasons for that, but in this case, we need to really accelerate it as fast as we can. Another thing I didn't predict is uh, the progress that we made, uh, we would make on some electrification technologies. Electric vehicles now, the ones I'm driving, they're sitting right here in my driveway next to me, are so much better and cheaper than I foresaw in 2008 when I started writing. Um, it's, and that's fantastic. So there are some things that moved faster and better than I foresaw and a couple of things that are lagging, including the thing, one of the things that Catherine mentioned, which is not the digitization of the grid, which I think is advancing, but the application of smart grid and smart pricing to all of our end uses is really moving quite slowly compared to the potential that's there. So Peter, first, I want to give you huge props for this book, which is incredible. You have loads of statistics and charts and literature and taxonomy of approaches and solutions, but you also ask really important questions and lay out different visions. And I think that's great because it makes us have to think a little bit about this. So there were sort of three ways that you thought we could think about the future of the grid. One is much more localized, smaller, distributed. The second was um, really having still the grid um, with much many more prosumers and deregulation. And the third is sort of this combination of having both a large grid and a smaller grid um, in, you know, working together. And I, I'm interested in hearing kind of where you come down or, or if there's one of those that you that you think will really rise. Well, I'm first of all, thank you for the the, the kind words on the book, um, and I really hope it is helpful to everyone. Um, I, I definitely come down uh, in the camp of folks who think that we're going to need both uh, expanded big grid, as I call it, large scale grid, greatly expanded, as well as uh, a greatly expanded base of distributed energy and smart grid and microgrids and localized solutions. And that really puts me at odds with many other folks in the field who really tend to emphasize just one of those. And I think with electricity use doubling to tripling between now and 2050, as we, we really need it to do to solve the climate crisis, um, and that's not to say that we will electrify absolutely everything, but just to electrify what it looks like we really need to electrify, uh, including personal transportation and lots of industrial processes and uh, lots of building heat, we're going to need much more electric energy. And we can get a good amount of it locally, and we should, but we can't get all of it from the, the distributed grid I just don't see it, and therefore we need large expansion of the large-scale grid. So it's it's definitely a hybrid solution, and making those two expansion paths mesh is really an interesting challenge. So I would love it if you could talk a little bit about electrification, because I think that is on everybody's mind about how do we decarbonize and also electrify, which we have to do. Well, I think of electrification in... In the, 
three buckets, three big buckets that align with the three end use sectors, transportation, buildings, and industry. And there are, I think, different approaches uh, appropriate for each to a degree. Transportation is the one that I think is furthest along. I think we have seen most, if not all, of the major automotive com companies in the world commit to electrifying their their production processes for light duty vehicles, largely speaking. And they have very long planning cycles, so it, it, it's very hard for them to turn their aircraft carrier once they set it in that direction. I, I hope that's true. Um, so electrification of transportation is already somewhat aligned with reality and the questions there have to do with the charging patterns, the evolution of the batteries and the charging infrastructure and driver patterns and how autonomous driving is going to affect that over the next 30 years. And so it's less a question of are we going to have electric vehicles and more a question of what the charging tech and the charging infrastructure is going to look like. For buildings, uh, I am most worried about this sector, and it ties very much to the application of the smart grid to our residential and commercial building stock. We, we already have a housing crisis of the first order in our country where people can't afford their rent along with their other basic living expenses. And on top of that, we need to take this already inadequate building stock we need to make it more efficient and we need to make it smarter. And we all understand that that takes upfront capital investment. Um, in a country where uh, there's al already a shortage of residential capital, you might say. So we need really visionary institutional change to attack our building stock. And as we do that, we can make it efficient and smarter. We have the tech, but the institutions and the capital are really, really challenging. Um, and then finally, in, in industry, I think this has to proceed on an industry-by-industry industry basis because the degree to which you can electrify and how you electrify and merge that with other clean fuels um, is very industry-specific. So, some industries like petrochemicals, which I'm working on a lot at Boston University with some partners and colleagues, it's clear that the petrochemical industry will electrify some of its processes, but also need green hydrogen and maybe blue hydrogen and other biosynthetic fuels to decarbonize, whereas some industries will just move pretty much completely to electrification and won't need biofuels. And each industry has its own traditions, its own capital constraints, its own regulation, its own ecosystem. And I'm really in favor of industry coalitions and government going industry by industry through the big emitting industrial sectors and make a plan. One of the things that feels radically different from a decade ago is the pushback on natural gas. Of course, at the turn of the last decade, we were entering this new gas boom, thanks to fracking. We saw historically low prices and a historic build out of natural gas plants. And today there is 
incredible amount of pushback on the gas plans that many utilities have going forward because there's this recognition, a broad recognition, that we need to stop building fossil fuels, any kind of fossil fuels, as quickly as possible. So how do you grade utility plans right now and how they're decarbonizing their portfolios. You have a ton of net zero targets. So decades out, utilities are pledging a net zero energy mix, but there's a lot of gas still in the queue. Utilities are getting called out for that. Some of them are reevaluating their plans, both operating plants. How can they replace operating plants with a mix of renewables and batteries? And how can they replace um, planned plants as well? So how do you view the perception of gas and how that feeds into many of the net zero targets that we're seeing from utilities? Well, I think uh, there's sort of two questions in there, Stephen. One of them is how do you grade utilities on decarbonization plans? And the second question is uh, what's, what's the role of gas in those plants? And I think those are a little bit distinct. Yeah, so let's uh, separate so- them a bit. So let's talk about the net zero targets first. And then we can talk about where gas fits in. So how do you grade those net zero targets? Well, um, speaking as a um, uh, professor of the practice uh, who's learned how to grade late in life, um, I'll say it's harder than it looks. Um, when you have utilities creating decarbonization plans, um, you have to look at their access to hydroelectric resources, which makes decarbonization now much easier because that's your only viable large-scale battery, a seasonal battery. Um, You also have to look at the size of the problem, the regulatory climate, um, the country that they're in, where Europe's got just a much better federal climate in a lot of, and and a regional EU-wide climate. I have to look at whether it's an IOU or a public. And you also have to look pretty carefully at whether the targets are scope one, one and two, one, two, and three, um, which, is, of course, is the latter being the most ambitious of all, but also the most difficult to achieve. So you really give extra credit <laughs> as a grader to anyone who pulls scope three into their target. And therefore, looking down a list of, you know, what's the date of net zero can be a little bit misleading. And in fact, another project I'm doing at Boston University called the IMAP project is looking back at utility commitments to not to go to net zero because that's in the future, but to their commitments to cut interim amounts of CO2 um, over the last decade and looking at how many utilities met those commitments and the reasons why they didn't if they didn't. In some cases, they exceeded them. And we'll have a paper coming out on that. And that's one of the reasons why I see that there's lots of complicating factors. Um, but having said that, I, I think there are utilities that are leaning in harder and um, doing really impressive jobs. I also want to mention first, though, taking half a step back, that overall, uh, one thing I did not foresee in 2010 is how much progress the whole sector would make. Now, a lot of it was a shift away from coal to gas, but it's pretty amazing if you ask me that the electric utility sector in the United States is has cut more than a third of its carbon since 2005. Uh, that's quite amazing. Um, and all, 66% of utilities have adopted net zero targets, all, all of our EIP utilities. So that's a sign of hope to me. Um, so I, I think there are some standouts, 
Stephen and some laggards, but it's not always apparent just from glancing at a sheet full of dates. So one of the things that happened, of course, was that when fracked gas is what people are calling it now rather than natural gas um, was being used as the bridge that you were getting some really low hanging fruit by shutting down coal plants. And there was a real initiative to do that on the regulatory front and also just on the economic front. And so that had a huge impact as did energy efficiency and reduced energy intensity so that our demand did not grow, Peter, which you spent a lot of time in the book talking about. But I think you touch on something that is really important from the utility standpoint, which is not only do you need to have plans because utilities do have to plan so far in advance, but also these interim targets are so important to know where you are along the way so that you're not just kicking the can down to 2050 when the people who made these decisions will no longer be with us. And instead, you're finding out along the way what the measurable process is. And as utilities make decisions in their current integrated resource plans, are they picking gas because it really is the only solution? Or are they are they really thinking about what's going to be happening in 2050? And are they going to be willing to write off an asset as stranded um, when they know it's a fossil fuel and eventually it will have to shut down? Yeah. So that brings us to the gas piece, Peter. I mean, a lot of utilities are still planning a ton of new gas plants. So how do we think about what they're saying with their targets and their, and the plans around the country to, to build a bunch of new fossil fuels? Um, well, it is true that there's a fair number of new gas plants um, yeah, sort of on paper. And um, I think some of them, but not all of them, will be built. Um, what, the way I see gas as a generating resource now is that if you're a utility doing an IRP now, um, you can get to a, a, a certain level of renewable energy in your modeling, and, at, and then you run out of balancing resources. Um, I'll just take one utility that I think has really been done a good job of leaning forward, and that's Excel Energy, and it has a pretty impressive 85% reduction target by 2030. This is one of your interim targets. Catherine, and I agree with you that interim targets are very helpful, and the the leaders and standouts have ambitious interim targets, like Excel. Um, but um, even at Excel, their modeling shows that beyond 85%, they need balancing resources, and they don't have uh, Norway's giant hydroelectric base to draw on. And the only balancing resource that's economical right now, unfortunately, is natural gas. So if you're writing a plan now and you're talking about what you're going to be relying on to balance the remainder of your uh, renewable energy, you're going to put gas in your plan. Um, and by the way, if I could take a half step back, uh, Catherine, I think you're exactly right that uh, the shift from coal to gas was part of this era, the, the first era of decarbonization, I call it for utilities. But there, there's also been, as part of that era, a pretty significant increase in wind and solar installed by utilities, but also the easy low-hanging fruit when they could grab cheap wind, um, which, which dropped greatly in price. They had transmission, and they grabbed it. Now it's getting harder, not because we've run out of wind, but because we need more transmission build-out. 
it's more and more difficult to access cheap renewables. And as we go offshore, um, which is dropping quickly, we need big transmission build-outs there. So I agree there was kind of a first era of decarbonization, and the whole book is meant to be about the next era of getting all the way to net zero. Um, but if I could finish my point about gas, between now and 2050, I hope that two of the most important developments that we see will be technologies like form energy, not just form, but others that come up with a dollar a kilowatt hour and below seasonal storage opportunities and technologies, and also very possibly an expansion of responsibly sourced renewable natural gas or sequestered natural gas plants, like the alum cycle plant that's uh, operating in Texas. And so that what we see actually built and operated in the 2030s and 40s will not be conventional natural gas plants, even if that's what's in EIA's forecast now. So, Peter, I uh, a lot keeps me up at light, night, including uh, a lot of the fires and flooding and everything else that's going on. And you, know, you, you, you paint several different ways that the system could evolve given the climate crisis that we're facing. So what keeps you up at night? What, what are you worried about? And what are you most hopeful about? The, the things that I, I am most worried about are uh, building decarbonization, which I've already talked about a bit. Uh, because it ties to the whole, what I would call uh, social, uh, socioeconomic crisis our country is facing, um, any, the growth of inequality, the pol political polarization, the need to repair our whole social safety net, of which housing is a really important part. So that uh, complicated nexus uh, keeps me up at night. Uh, industrial car decarbonization keeps me up a little bit at night because I think, it, as I said, it's an industry-by-industry industry challenge, and it's um, complicated and uh, requires very intelligent cooperation between uh, our federal government even, and even international cooperation in each industry. Um, and the final thing I'll mention that we haven't talked about too much is infrastructure build-out. And that's not just the transmission grid, but it certainly starts with the transmission grid, which I think needs to grow by at least 50% and or more over the next 20 years, offshore and onshore. And as all of us on the energy gang and many listeners know, the United States has a very, very poor track record, uh, probably the worst transmission planning, uh, permitting, and installation track record uh, of any of the advanced economies. We really need to change that, and that will take some federal and state policy cooperation that has been in short supply. And that also extends to uh, hydrogen infrastructure, joint sequestration hydrogen hub infrastructure, pioneered by the Energy Futures Initiative and others. And so energy infrastructure uh, is a under-recognized missing link between consumers, I think, who really embrace renewable energy. And, and now we're getting to the things that I'm hopeful. There's tremendous support in 
all phases of the electorate uh, across the political spectrum for climate action. And there's enormous support in the investment community. And I see this at Energy Impact Partners and in my work at BU. There, and we will see it at COP26. There's been a real shift on Wall Street towards seeing this as the once in a generation investment opportunity that it is. And so those two things are really, really hopeful signs. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. This year, SunGrow is supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage to projects across North America. Among these projects is the Chisholm Grid Battery Storage Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid will use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls in a long-term services contract to meet the demanding ERCOT market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of the assets. To learn more about SunGrow's work in the battery storage business, email them at info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Solving power-related challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Are you going to select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way? And even with dedicated in-house resources, getting to that conclusion can be uncertain and time-consuming. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with confidence by working with an integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com NWA. Okay, so let's tie this in to some major events that have been happening just in the last couple of weeks. It has been a wild summer and just a wild couple of weeks since we last recorded the show. In the wake of Hurricane Ida, a million people were without power in Louisiana and Mississippi. Many dozens died in New York and Tennessee from flash flooding. More fires in Northern California forced tens of thousands to run. Half the country right now is in drought conditions, putting stress on water systems in the West and the Midwest. 30 years ago, there were four billion dollar weather disasters a year and we're averaging 12 billion dollar disasters since 2015. And today our grid is collapsing on a regular basis because of extreme heat, fires, storms. In Louisiana, a lot of residents, mostly people who are struggling already economically, could be without power for a month. Um, the levees around New Orleans may have held, but the grid buckled easily. After all transmission lines were wiped out by Ida, there's still no cohesive plan to, by the utility uh, energy to use distributed generation to help folks. And so the question is, could distributed generation have helped there in Louisiana? How's we're gonna, let's do an let's get an update on how the grid is faring, given that we've seen so many more extreme weather events. And Catherine will turn to Louisiana. This is the most immediate story. What is happening there in the wake of the hurricane? Yeah, so if you look at poweroutage.us, you can see where power outages are all over the country. And it's just by state. It's not by parish or by county or anything. So, for example, California has usually about 20,000 customers out 
all the time, uh, especially this time of year. Louisiana still has over 300,000 customers out, and it's been a week and a half since the storm hit. So a lot of folks do not have electricity. Now, when I talked to Ashley Shelton, who runs the Power Coalition for Equity and Justice, and she's in Baton Rouge, but works with people throughout the state, She said, people say we don't have infrastructure. And during Katrina, there was no infrastructure. She said, since then, we have built infrastructure. And that infrastructure is in the form of humans. It is people who coordinate water distribution, food distribution, cooling centers, because it it is hot as Hades down there. So she said, there is infrastructure. It's just not the infrastructure that we have invested in. So the first thing they say is, like, this is not to cast any aspersions on the incredibly brave people who are working the power lines, trying to get them back on. That is an extremely dangerous job. I worked for utility for 10 years, and it is really, really hard work, and those people are working really hard. So those line workers who are not just from Entergy, but utilities all over the country who are coming in to help them, those are being met with gratitude. But there are a couple of big problems. (laughs) One is that... um, the city council uh, has not been regulating the utility the way they should, and that would be energy. And the other is that people really want to move on to renewable energy. And that is to help their economy. Right now, only 5% of the GDP of Louisiana is from the oil and gas industry, and yet the oil and gas industry is what has taken away their coastal protection and has built a lot of these plants that are causing issues. So I spoke also with Logan Burke and Jessica Hendricks, who are with the Alliance for Affordable Energy. And what they said is there are a lot of questions about what the utility did and did not do. So one thing is that there was a resilience plan that Entergy had where the transmission was supposed to be hardened. It was supposed to withstand between 140 and 150 mile per hour winds. And these winds in New Orleans were not did not reach that level. They were at about 100 and they did not hold up. So why is that? Why did that happen? The other thing that they ask is the utility got a natural gas plant built ostensibly, and it's called New Orleans Power Station, NOPS. It was built in 2019. And this is the one that they had to bring in actors um, that they paid to say that they needed this gas plant. But the gas plant was approved because they said, look, this gas plant will be able to island New Orleans. So if there's a big storm, we will be able to have New Orleans stay in power. And all the lines connecting the power plant to the rest of the city failed. Why did that happen? Why was it not planned that this power station would be able to actually create a microgrid? And this isn't a tiny microgrid. This is maybe a series of microgrids or maybe a large microgrid. But they have questions about why was this not the case? What they do know is that the utility has not taken seriously the idea that you could support the the technologies that people already have, between five and 7,000 customers in New Orleans already have solar. So why not back it up with batteries? Why not allow that solar to still run? All of those people with solar on their rooftops do not have power right now. 
And they should. That should have been something the utility planned for. The other thing that utility did not take seriously was a study that Sandia National Lab did in 2018 that said, here are the easiest, cheapest, and quickest places to build microgrids in New Orleans. And they did not take that seriously, and they did not act on it. So there are questions still out there about what Entergy did and didn't do, and you know what did the customers actually pay for that they did or didn't get? And then what did the utilities simply not take seriously and not act on even though they knew about it? Yeah, so much to unpack there. And Jeff St. John of Canary Media wrote a really good piece about the history of Entergy's resistance to distributed energy in the lead up to the hurricane and the consequences to that foot dragging. And what this is one of the things that really drives me crazy about this conversation because you have folks who are skeptical of distributed generation, who are maybe skeptical of distributed generation on a mass scale to decarbonize the grid, or maybe you have a utility like Entergy that just wants to build a big gas plant and they don't really care about microgrids. But like it, the distributed generation can be incredibly economically powerful, of course, because it can help you reduce the build out of the, the distribution system or can prevent massive upgrades. But when you have people, you know, particularly low income customers who are sitting sweltering in 90 degree heat and you have people who could potentially die because they're sitting in their houses and they have nowhere to go and that, you know, uh, that they have no power for weeks at a time, then distributed generation becomes extremely, extremely valuable. And the fact that a utility like Entergy basically ignored it and resisted it when they, when they knew and they had they actually had distributed energy providers coming to the utility saying, hey, we can pull together batteries and generators and other distributed resources to provide these pockets of resilience for you after storms. They did not pursue that. That is unconscionable. And like we know that these storms are coming more frequently. We know how valuable distributed generation is, even in small pockets after these storms. And the and and I just I, I feel like people should be shocked that a utility like Entergy has not pursued that. And they fought. They fought. They they threatened the city council in New Orleans of lawsuits if they did any kind of resilience plan that would include distributed energy. They they have fought it in a way that was really quite active and not only fighting distributed generation, but they also strategically starved their transmission build out. So they don't have the transmission infrastructure either. So the future, you know, if you look at, well, what can they do? Well, you know, it would be great if the city council and also the public service commission in Louisiana held energy to account for all of this. All of this has been paid for by the taxpayers in Louisiana. Hold them to account for this, but also make sure in their planning processes, and Peter talked about this in the first episode, that you integrate both the supply and demand sides in your planning so that you look at the resources on both sides of the grid. Because what happened in 2016 in their IRP is the gas plant did not pencil out. It was not picked when they did their planning process, and they forced it into the model. So they decided we're going to build a gas plant anyway, and we're going to ignore everything else. They said renewables are too expensive, energy efficiency is too expensive. But if you compare the expense of that to the loss of life, to the power outages, to the rebuilding costs, it is just, it doesn't add up. I certainly want to say that I agree that distributed generation and microgrids are absolutely essential parts of the future. And their resilience benefits 
are are economically essential. And what I mean by that is that almost all microgrid developers will tell you that unless they are they are somehow um, they can monetize the resilience benefits. That is, their customers are willing to pay for that, essentially that insurance that microgrids don't pencil because grid power still is much, much cheaper on a blue sky day. So, and that's true even though there's really better and better resilience tech. Um, one of our mutual colleagues, Scott Sklar, showed me a couple of great new sled-mounted, portable solar and storage options that you can bring right into a neighborhood or leave it there from SolarOne and SunWise and ZeroBase. So there's, there are better and better resilience creation options um, that are cheaper and cheaper. And I, I completely agree that we need to be using those. And every utility that's exposed to these kinds of threats should be thinking about how to deploy those. Every city should be thinking about how to deploy those. But I, but I also want to note that that alone isn't going to do it in the same sense that, a, that, a, that the small grid alone or the big grid alone on a blue, in the blue sky scenario we were talking about in the first episode isn't going to do it. You could put in a number of microgrids in the city of New Orleans or the city of New York or any city, and it's a good idea, you could not do it at anywhere near the scale that would protect all vulnerable people. I think we have to think about resilience in more dimensions than just adding distributed generation and microgrids. I do think we need them, but I think um, we need to think about the reality that grids are going to get knocked down by severe weather events. And I don't think it's realistic um, to get independent resilience solutions deployed anywhere near as universally and quickly as we need. And therefore, we have to have a mindset that says there are going to be these events. How do we equitably create uh, temporary landing pads for everyone in all neighborhoods, and how do we plan for getting the grid back up because it's going to get knocked down? I completely agree with your assessment about scale, right? But that is not an excuse for a utility like Energy spending years fighting this stuff because there is an army of entrepreneurs with good business ideas who are not necessarily a threat to the utility who can come and deploy these solutions in a strategic way that can help with grid management and keep people safe. And we can't just roll them out and service everybody, of course. Um, and so your point is very well taken and that we need to plan for massive outages to happen and hopefully remedy them faster. But I really just want, I just don't want to use that as an excuse for utilities fighting this stuff when we have the business models, there ready to scale and we're not doing it. Yeah, I asked Logan, um, well, who has a good plan? Who out there? What utility? And Con Ed in New York does have a resilience plan. Of course, we saw what happened with all the flooding there. So that's also a really tough 
you know scene that they that they had to deal with but the but NOAA um, the Oceanic Administration said there's a 60% chance that there will be a, an above normal hurricane season this year which I don't think is a stretch at all but what Logan said was look we we don't know how little prepared we are and what we need to do but she said what we do have to do is allow people and communities to to have a say in what they need and want and ownership in what they have. So the people in Louisiana paid for all of this hardening. They paid their utility for the hardening to the tune of so far, I think it's maybe $30 million for that power plant so far. And it added many, many dollars to the bills for the people in New Orleans, I think 80 to $100 to their bills. And she said, well, let's give community some ownership. So if you allow some of them to say, well, we would like to have a community microgrid, or we would like community solar, we want to be able to have some ownership. So we're not paying for something that we don't own, that simply goes to the, um, sorry, that, that um, simply goes to the utility shareholders, but we want something that comes back to us. And I think rather than deciding that there is some one solution that's going to work, which I think there isn't just one solution that's going to work, there are lots of solutions that could work, that we also need to let communities have the resources and the choices to act on those. So final question, both of you are paying close attention to the policy frameworks here. Catherine, I know you've been busy in Washington with the negotiations um, around the, the, the slate of bills that will address climate. Has this latest round of extreme weather influenced those discussions? It has certainly influenced the president as he's going around and talking about the climate crisis as he's looking at all these areas where people have had homes destroyed and they're still out of power. So I definitely think the president is well aware of it. And yes, I do think it is keeping the people's eyes on the ball. I think there are two components. One is this infrastructure bill that was bipartisan. And I think that has some really important pieces that are about grid resilience um, included in that and billions of dollars will go to that, which is a good thing. And then there's the other piece, which is climate mitigation. And we just have to keep pushing to make sure that we get a clean electricity payment program, that we get the accelerator, that we get clean energy tax credits, that we get all of those things that are really going to create a strong market so that utilities will have the signal, ah, in order for us to survive and and thrive and succeed, we need to change and we need to transition to a cleaner future. And that in turn will be more resilient. I want to agree with Catherine that I think this wave of unprecedented storms and weather events is having an impact on the discussion in Washington and on how our members of Congress view the, the value of these uh, both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package. And there are lots of reports of members of Congress talking uh, over the congressional recess about what's in these bills to help communities with water shortages and storm response and clean energy. I think we are witnessing just a shift in the thinking of the American people. Uh, and it began with the pandemic and uh, an uptick in concern about climate change that was unforeseen in the wake of uh, the COVID, the first wave of COVID. And I think that has been amplified now by the severe weather events. Let's wrap up the conversation. Go to Free Electrons. 
Catherine, what's your free electron this week? Okay, I have one really quick one and then one slightly longer. Um, everybody should check out at Autumn T. Johnson, who has been keeping me apprised of what's going on in Arizona and the latest development there, because Arizona continues to be an interesting state, is that Salt River Project, which is one of the big utilities out there that is divided into water and power districts, um, is with no stakeholder process and with no RFP process, deciding to spend a billion dollars to build a natural gas plant of almost a gigawatt. So if you look at her um, Twitter handle, Autumn T. Johnson, she has some information about that. Um, just if people care about Arizona, which is supposed to be the biggest solar state, um, looking to build another gas plant that will last for many, many decades. Um, the th- second thing I wanted to do is something is talk about was something a little bit more philosophical, which is I've been thinking a lot about kids going back to college. A lot of people have sent their their young ones off to college. And I remember very well going off to college and thinking um, I was really the only one who felt as uncomfortable as I did. And I think everybody feels equally uncomfortable. And realizing that, um, although I feel like I probably didn't Uh, take full advantage of what uh, I should have when I was there. And as my husband said, look, we all wish we could go back so we could do better. Um, I have been invited back to give some talks at at my alma mater, which is Cornell, and uh, I'm doing another virtual one this fall. And in fact, it's one of the only ones, I blanket apology to everybody I'm saying no to. I just, I can't, I can't do it right now. But I am going to speak to them again. And just to, to encourage people to really enjoy the experience. If you are in a STEM field, um, I encourage you to take creative writing or philosophy or psychology, get outside your comfort zone, realizing you already are outside your comfort zone, just being there. Um, and just know that you're not alone, that there's so much that you can do to contribute and participate, especially as we look to a world that is going to need all hands on deck, um, whether you are an engineer or you you're a writer or you're a filmmaker um, or you are a teacher. Um, everybody can can participate. And I just wish all of the new students and returning students out there Godspeed. Peter, what's your free electron? Well, I've, I have two, Stephen. Um, first of all, uh, COP26 is really coming up uh, soon. And I think we all need to say our prayers in whatever faith tradition we are in. Um, including a secular tradition to for that conference to be successful. And as I was saying earlier in the show, the fact that the investment community worldwide is um, has shifted to recognizing the importance of going deep and hard and investing in climate solutions across all the sectors. I think we're going to see quite a lot of investment activity, many new coalitions and, and announcements there. And that's, I think, significant. Um, the second free electron is is very, very different. Um, I, I've been involved in something that's just wonderful, and so I want to mention it. Um, the Camden Community College in Camden, New Jersey, is trying to stand up a course for um, a vocational training course for smart building technicians. This is something Catherine would love from her Gridwise era. Um, the, the new commercial buildings that are built um, are all digitized, 
and the current generation of building operating engineers can't work the software. So um, in cooperation with the Office of Building Technologies at the Department of Energy and Roxbury Community College, which has one of these courses, we're trying to stand up a course to certificate um, community college students to become smart building techs of the future. And I think that is something that makes me very hopeful. I love that. Two good stories of hope to wrap up the show. And uh, unfortunately, my story is not a terribly hopeful one, but it feeds into the extreme weather conversation that we've been having of late. Uh, the New York Times has this photo essay and deeply reported story about the towns all around the Gulf Coast and the Southeast that are being bankrupted by extreme weather particularly since like the 2015 timeframe as they've been hit with um, hurricane after hurricane and a lot of these small towns with very little tax base that had already been struggling economically don't have the money to clean up after extreme floods. Um, you know, we, we, we hear these stories of, um, of, of big cities bouncing back after these hurricanes and then we sort of forget about a lot of the smaller communities around the country on in coastal areas and there are dozens and dozens of them that are struggling. People have just completely moved out. They have no way of cleaning up buildings that have been damaged by floodwaters. And we are seeing this decaying of, of communities all around the Southeast. And the photos are really striking. You know, they feel very apocalyptic. And um, we are, are witnessing the beginnings of, of climate migration from some of these coastal communities and it's just just the start yeah that's super interesting it's it's kind of um not dissimilar from what's happened to coal communities you, you know you have a community that is based on you know in in the case of the coast it's based on tourism or it's based on fishing and a lot of that way of life is going to have to go away if we keep having these storms so thank you for talking about that and, and while we're at it let's um sort of uh recognize that around the world, there's more climate refugees than any other form of refugees. And the, the number of refugees in the world now is the largest it's been since World War II, I think 60 million folks. So we're witnessing it all over the world, Stephen, and in most places worse than in the US, as tragic as it is here. Well, we feel the urgency here. We appreciate you coming on the show, Peter, uh, to talk through what this transition looks like from your vantage point. And your book is called Power After Carbon, Building a Clean, Resilient Grid. Highly recommended for our listeners. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Dr. Peter Fox Penner is the founder of the Boston University Institute for Sustainable Energy, and he's a partner and chief strategy officer at Energy Impact Partners. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions, and she's my regular co-host. Catherine, always a pleasure. Absolutely. This was wonderful. We'll catch you all soon. We are a production of Postscript Media and Wood McKenzie. You can hit us up on social media if you want to comment on the show, and we will catch you next week. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey.